and you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, political activist Neil Farrow joins us and we chat with Matthew from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. Well, Neil Farrow is campaigning to ensure the political parties in Victoria pre-select more LGBTIQ candidates for winnable seats at the next state election and we chatted this week. Uh, this is the uh, It Takes Time campaign. So it was great uh, a little while back, James, to have a, a chat to you about the fact that Victoria has actually one of the lowest uh, percentage and number of LGBTI people in political office of any state in Australia. And so it's been really good recently to see that the Victorian Pride Lobby has actually kicked off a campaign called the It Takes More campaign to try and get more LGBTI people into office in Victoria. Um, so that campaign was officially launched last night and it was great to have a number of MLAs and, and um, political players from all spectrums and views are getting on board to encourage more LGBTI people to get involved in politics. How has this campaign or these two campaigns, how have they been received by the Premier's office? Uh, I haven't actually heard from the Premier's office as fate would have it. I did write a letter probably about uh, two months ago now asking to have a discussion and and keen to sort of hear his thoughts on this issue. I know he's been very busy with COVID, but uh, I would very much like to take that opportunity to catch up and touch base and say, you know, we do really need more LGBTI people elected to our parliament in Victoria, not just on the Labor side of the fence, but on the Liberal and National side as well. You know, some of the key stats in this space are amazing. So, for instance, in the ACT, they have um, almost 20% of their MPs uh, in the ACT, so four MPs out of a parliament of 25 are LGBTI and two out of their cabinet of eight uh, LGBTI. In WA, we have two of their cabinet of 18, two cabinet ministers, whereas in Victoria, we've never actually had an LGBTI cabinet minister um, at all, ever, in our 160-odd years of history. Speaking of cabinet ministers, has Martin Foley, the, the Minister for Our Communities, responded to your campaign or the lobby's campaign, or indeed Harriet Shing, the Parliamentary Secretary, who uh, actually spoke at the Victorian Pride Lobby's uh, online forum about the very issue? So I think Harriet Ching was uh, great last night. It was really good to have her um, formally launching the It Takes More campaign. And she's been an amazing supporter of the LGBTI community and very active on a number of fronts. Um, I know Martin's been very busy, obviously, with uh, COVID being the health minister as well. But it would be really great this election to really try and get some more people who um, are LGBTI into Parliament. It would be great to have, you know, a Minister for Equality who perhaps comes from the LGBTI community, particularly given um, the, the critique or the criticism when we had things like Tony Abbott acting as Minister for Women. It really shows the importance of having representation on the community, from the community, um, in those key leadership decisions and positions. So it sounds like no member of the government, apart from Harriet Ching's, actually spoken to you about the uh, poor representation of LGBTIQ MPs in Victoria's Parliament from the Labor Party. I mean, as you said last time we spoke, uh, it's hard for the government to hold on to the equality mantle when the representation's so low. Yeah, and look, it, it is one of those things, and, and that's why I think the Victorian Pride Lobby's campaign is so important. The name of that campaign is It Takes More, because it does take more than just having an equality minister to have an equal parliament. And it takes more than just legislative and regulatory reforms to have an equal and representative parliament as well. And when you have such appallingly low numbers, as I said, um, one of the lowest of any states and territories in Australia, and one of the lowest of any developed democracy anywhere in the world. You know, we have 46 states in the US that beat us on percentage and number terms for LGBTI representation. Um, you know, these aren't exactly all Democrat states either. Some of the most conservative states in the US have higher percentage and 
number of LGBTI elected representatives than Victoria does. So we are really behind the eighth ball and we need to sharpen up our game in this regard. So as I said, I'm, I'm hopeful when, uh, when some of the dust over COVID settles and, and perhaps some of our MPs and ministers have a bit more time to, to have a meeting and to discuss this issue, because I think it's really important. And in the meantime, for the LGBTI community, really get involved and consider running. Um, you know, putting pressure on on all sorts of um, uh, political stakeholders is, is really key to get our numbers up in time for the Victorian election, which is a little bit, I'm going to say, almost about a year away. So we're getting pretty close to the election at this stage already. I mean, you're a Victorian Labor Party insider. You ran for Paran twice. You talk to a lot of people within the party. Why is there this schism between these great policies that the government has about inclusion and uh, equality for the LGBTIQ community and all these wonderful law reforms they've passed? Why is there a schism between that and having very poor representation in Parliament? Is it something about the Victorian Labor Party's culture? Is there a culture of kind of internalised homophobia almost, if you like? Like, why do we have this schism, this disparity? Look, I think it's a really interesting question and, and one to, where, to be honest, I can't actually work out the answer because, you know, I've, I've been a member of the party for a long time. I was national chair of Rainbow um, Labor. We achieved a lot of really good reforms um, uh, when I was chair of Rainbow Labor and, and, and across the movement. We've got some great policies that have happened in Victoria from an equality perspective. Um, I just think it's just been a challenge to get LGBTI MPs elected. Um, and I think that means, you know, it's always uncomfortable just as it has been trying to get more women into parliament because what it means is some people are going to have to give up their seats and create space for others to join. And so it's one of those perennial challenges, you know, how do you um, find space? Everyone wants to be elected. How do you um, get those sorts of things sort of happening and, and institutionalised? And it's really interesting as well because if you have a look at jurisdictions like WA, WA Labor has a, a substantial majority in WA and there is a huge, huge presence of LGBTI MPs. Um, so, you know, I do, I do think it's something we need to sort of be more attentive to and focus on. And, and I'm not quite sure the reason why there is such a discrepancy between sort of really progressive policies within the Labor Party on LGBTI issues and, and, and this sort of aversion to, um, to electing more LGBTI MPs uh, in Victoria. It sounds like there's a pink ceiling within the Labor Party's uh, pre-selection process in Victoria. Oh, look, I would definitely say that there's uh, probably a pink ceiling uh, in a lot of political parties uh, and the way they pre-select. And, and I think it's something that we do need to puncture um, well and truly in that space. You know, it's, it's not good enough for Victoria to have only elected three LGBTI people since 1856. So we've had three openly LGBTI politicians, and the first one of those was a Liberal Party Upper House uh, MLC uh, a number of years ago. We now currently have one Labor uh, uh, Upper House MP and one Labor Lower House uh, MLA or MP who is openly LGBTI. And so in all of Victoria's history, so as I said, 160 years, we've had three openly LGBTI people. We've never elected a trans or an intersex person, a, a, an out bisexual, someone who's genderqueer. We've never elected a lesbian to the lower house. The Labor Party's never elected a gay guy to the upper house. You know, it's such a small um, uh, component of our history in Victoria that it really does deserve the attention. And for us to, to really stand on the mantle of the equality state, we need to make sure that more LGBTI people are elected in Parliament. And, and having sort of a paltry representation, which is one of the worst in Australia and the world, is is really not what the equality state's about. You know, WA... Um, 
Northern Territory, ACT, all have higher percentages of LGBTI people and higher percentage of ministers. You know, the Northern Territory has an out minister. WA has two. The ACT has two. Um, you know, these are a really, uh, really important things. South Australia uh, has had them historically as well. So, you know, it's not just getting LGBTI people into seats. It's really important to have LGBTI visibility in our ministry um, and in leadership positions of all political parties. And I think, you know, this isn't just an issue for the Labor Party, the Libs and the National Party need to up their game, as do the Greens. Um, and it's no use putting LGBTI candidates in seats that they've got no hope of winning. That doesn't send the right message to the community. We really need LGBTI candidates in winnable seats from all of the parties uh, in the Victorian Parliament if we genuinely wish to be the equality state. All of those issues considered, it kind of begs belief that the uh, the government is engaging with you on, on these issues. It kind of begs belief that, you know, MPs aren't taking you aside and saying, yeah, Neil, we've got a problem with our pre-selection. We've got a problem with our representation. Uh, and we're going to take these steps within the party to try and fix it. I'm amazed that those conversations aren't happening. Look, I think um, there's been a lot obviously happening in Victoria with COVID and the dynamics that we've had here. Um, but I won't try to make excuses for the fact that we do really need to have this discussion and it needs to be had um, in all political parties and at all levels. Um, you know, we cannot claim to have a representative parliament when we are such appallingly low with with such appallingly low representation in the LGBTI community. Like we really need to take a step in that space and, and try to do things differently. Um, so I'm hopeful that um, before pre-selection kicks off uh, for the Labor Party and and um, I'd happily catch up with uh, the Liberal Party or the Nationals or the Greens and have a similar discussion. But, you know, it is really time that we start electing LGBTI people to Parliament in Victoria. You know, it, I found it great that in the recent German election, two trans people were elected for the first time. You know, that is a great example of, of visibility and a great example um in the German parliament. They're the sorts of things that we need to get better at in Victoria and make sure that our parliament is reflective of our community. And I can really see why you've been a bit of a lone ranger on this issue within the Labor Party because of that lack of support and why you've been reaching out to the lobby, which which has a, a, a diversity of people from, you know, uh, multiple political parties on it, uh, lobbying on this issue. So it's it's quite an alliance, isn't it, of, of, of queer folks across parties pushing for better representation in Victoria. Well, look, I think it was really great last night at the launch event to have, as I said, representatives from from a lot of different political parties and a lot of different political views. And and it was really good to have um, even, I think, the, um, the shadow minister for equality in Victoria, obviously a Liberal Party person, I think also joined for the launch, which was a really great start. So not only did we have Harriet there and we had representation from the ACT um, and, and members from sort of some of the more left-wing parties that we have in Victoria as well, sort of kicking things off and, and all sharing the view that, you know, we need to get better in this space. Um, the lobby does an amazing effort advocating on behalf of, of the LGBTI community on a whole heap of issues. And, you know, we've had remarkably successful law reforms in Victoria and and, and changes to um, legislation and regulations. But we really do need to focus on the fact that our LGBTI representation in Parliament is so poor in all political parties. And while the election's a year away in Victoria, it will be very, very soon that the major political parties are starting to pre-select candidates. So we need to be asking why more candidates aren't being pre-selected, not just in marginal seats, but in safe seats across all political parties. So Victoria cannot continue to be one of the worst um, developed democracies anywhere in the world when it comes to LGBTI representation. 
of course, you have been mentoring people across multiple parties to kind of prepare them for putting their hands up to run for office. How's that going? Look, that's going really well. And there's actually a training session kicking off um, as part of this campaign um, being done by the Victorian Pride Lobby. They're actually undertaking a training campaign for people who are LGBTI and interested in running for parliament and covering things like, you know, the processes of nominations and how a campaign works, the campaign trail and common mistakes, um, making the most out of COVID and, and some of the hints and tips learnt along the way. And that first training session will be on the 7th of October. Um, so visit the It Takes More website for more information. That's It Takes more.com.au or the Victorian Pride Lobby um, if you want to register and attend. And as I said, we're really excited to hopefully have a strong attendance at these and, and try and increase Victoria's parliamentary representation. And as I said to you, James, one of the um, great things this time around is um, I have well and truly declared that I won't be running. And so um, you, it just gives you more flexibility and ability to comment on these issues because people don't believe it's, it's purely in self-interest. Um, so, you know, one of the critiques previously is whenever these issues were raised, it's often often raised by candidates who are LGBTI and they're told, you know, kind of watch your P's and Q's and, and stick to your swim lane and, you know, raising this issue is, is self-interest alone. I think it's really important to stand up and say that there's a lot of people involved in this campaign who are less, who are not running, but are genuinely interested in seeing more LGBTI people in Parliament. And Neil, there must be a link between that attitude from the party hierarchy saying, you know, don't campaign as a gay man and the lack of representation. Like that kind of suggests to me what the problem is, that there is an element of homophobia that's kind of, you know, basically holding queer MPs or queer candidates back. Uh, I think you've just explained what, what part of the problem is. Look, I think all political parties have had historical issues in this space, even those that claim that they haven't. Um, and, you know, uh, getting LGBTI MPs is one of the ways to actually resolve and rectify some of those issues. So, you know, while we hear that lots of political parties don't have any issues in this area, um, from speaking to all sides, there is improvements to be made in every political party in relation to LGBTI representation and, and homophobia and engagement. You've also got to remember, though, that um, this is a, a double issue, particularly for women who are trying to run for parliament. So while Victoria is close to approaching 50-50 representation in our parliament for women, historically, parliament has been a very unfavourable place for a number of women. And, you know, um, whether it's it, of all political parties need to sort of continue to commit to uh, getting women involved in Parliament. And that means it's a double challenge for members of our lesbian or, or trans or intersex community in that they're facing barriers, um, additional barriers around um, uh, access to Parliament uh, on top of the fact that they might identify with the LGBTIQ community. So as a mentor of potential candidates, is, is your advice to those people that, look, you know, if you do get told by the party hierarchy not to campaign as an out gay man, uh, to push back against that? Like, do you regret that you didn't actually kind of push back a bit more on that, on that kind of, you know, uh, pressure? Look, I think some of my biggest regrets uh, having ran for parliament on a couple of occasions in Victoria have actually been listening to the advice of sort of head office or or other officers in the party, um, perhaps where your own judgment tells you that you should be or could be doing something different. Um, so that's not to say uh, you ignore sort of the political party and, and, you know, all political movements take more than just one person to be in them. And, and you know, it's a, it's a wide community of, of views and, and things like that. But I do think um, it, it, it some of my regrets have been perhaps I was um, too willing to, to listen to 
apparent experts in the field when just sometimes your gut tells you that maybe that's not the right thing to do. Um, but look, with that said, the Labor Party has always been supportive um, of my activities. As I said, I was co-chair of Rainbow Labor for almost seven years nationally and, and got the, the really great opportunity to ran, run for PRAN twice in, in 2014 and 2018. And so while I'm um, definitely not running this time round, um, I am really hopeful that we'll be able to get some great LGBTI candidates um, in all political parties, um, and that includes the Labor Party. You know, I'd be exceptionally disappointed, and it would be a mark on on Victoria and our quality achievements if we enter another election or, or, or another electoral cycle. And and you know, we're having this discussion in a year's time, and we've had no improvement to LGBTI representation in Victoria. I mean, you know, I think that is a real danger. Um, so watch this space, and I hope that we uh, will get some movement and and. Um, we won't be having the same discussion in time for the next Victorian Parliament in four years' time as well. So it sounds like the problem with pink ceilings is not so much the Victorian government, not so much the Andrews government, but ALP head office here in Victoria. Look, as I said, what ha- there's lots of quirks around um, around politics and political offices, and and um, you know there's lots of really amazing people in all political parties. I just think my message to all of them is, you know, we've really got to do something about this space. We've really got to keep our women's representation up and make sure we have a, a you know an equal caucus and cabinet for women. But we also need to do so for LGBTI communities, um, and we also need to understand that you know our movement is bigger than one person and and one cause. And so in doing that, we need the diversity of our community when it comes to, you know, First Nations or culturally and linguistically diverse, LGBTI, different backgrounds, different careers before entering politics. I think all of these things will be key to achieving better outcomes for all Victorians. And we've all had a rough couple of years. Um, So, you know, we live in hope that uh, some of these aspirations will happen in time for the 2022 election. You're listening to an interview with Neil Farrow on three CRs in your face. You mentioned the government's rightful focus on the on the pandemic and how consuming that is. What are your sources within the government telling you about uh, their thoughts on the riots that have been happening here in Melbourne? Look, it's one of these really interesting, um, really interesting things that um, you know I was very disappointed in in sort of. Uh, what occurred and and the riots and protests that we've had across Melbourne in this space. Um, But there is a lot of people who are really hurting and and I think um, feeling frustrated. So while, you know, I think um, it's just challenging times for all of us and and hopefully we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, coming forward. I definitely am am missing seeing my family and friends and um, I think I've seen my sister less in the last year and a half than, than probably ever. She lives in New South Wales, so, you know, it's very difficult to visit her at the moment but you know um you know some of its disappointment some of its anger some of its frustration but um i think you know hopefully the light is ahead and and you know our roadmap will hopefully see us get out of victoria i was very happy to be uh, fully vaxxed um and i think that's the one thing that we really just need to encourage our community to do but government mps must be under enormous pressure from their constituents and they must be talking amongst themselves about about just what it's like for them uh can you give us any insights, Neil? I know they talk to you. I know you're an insider. Uh, look, it's quite interesting. A lot of them have just been very busy. So I actually haven't had too many conversations recently um, with MPs. I think everybody's starting to tire of sort of online Zoom meetings and consultation in that regard. Um, and, you know, they're just really trying to deliver on all political sides for for the best for Victorians in, in what is very difficult difficult times. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting and, and challenging time. But 
but I can't provide too much um, insight in relation to that, I must say. It's, it's kind of been a bit of a, not a quiet period, but, you know, everyone is, um, is, is uh, head down and bum up uh, trying to get through this year, I think, and, and just hope that 2022 will be a little bit better. What are your thoughts on uh, the re-minting of Matthew Guy as opposition leader? Look, I don't think particularly highly of Matthew Guy when he was planning minister. I know definitely the people around Pran and in South Yarra, um, where I used to live, sort of detrimentally suffered from some of his planning decisions. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do hope that uh, at least this time around in the election, he perhaps tones down some of the sort of what was very racist um, sort of fear-mongering that happened last state election and, and perhaps hopes uh, focuses more on the aspirations that Victorians have as opposed to focusing on their fears. Yes, he was accused of racist policies in 2018. Do you think it's no coincidence that the parties returned to him when we're seeing a rise of the far right in Victoria? I mean, it, it seems a, a peculiar coincidence, don't you think? Look, I've, um, I am worried about the rise of any extremes, um, both the far right and the far left uh, on these sorts of issues. And, and you know, I think it's, it's a really challenging time through COVID and the economic consequences and job loss and things like that. And, and you, you want to have safety nets and security so that people don't fall to the extremes of politics, whether that be extreme right or extreme left. You know, I think um, there's been a broader challenge within the Liberal Party in Victoria that they've spent a very long time recruiting out of very religious uh, organisations and sort of that skews their politics and skews their views. Um, and, and while I'm on the Labor side of the fence, you know, good politics is always made in the middle and I'd encourage people who are LGBTI and sort of liberal-leaning to get involved in the Liberal Party uh, and hopefully steer them back towards the centre because we really do need that consensus in politics. Um, you know, I said, don't think that highly of Matthew Guy, but um, but I do hope he's learnt particularly uh, some lessons around the more damaging elements of his policies of 2018. Neil Fira, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you, James. Have a great day.
Hi, we are the Lumberjills. Hello, nous sommes les Lumberjills. And we're from Canada. So you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, and we just want to say support your local radio station. Way, hey, and away we go. Donkey riding, donkey riding. Way, hey, and away we go. Riding on a donkey. Feeling coming over me now. 
Jonah Knife there on top of the world. We also heard from Rasheen Murphy, You Know Me Better. While Matthew is the policy officer for Sex Work Law Reform Victoria, this week he spoke out in support of the full decriminalisation of sex work at Borondara Council in Melbourne, and he tells us why. Thank you for having me, James. So on the 6th of September, City of Borondara passed an anti-sex work motion, and I felt it was important for a sex worker to speak in response. So tell us what that anti-sex work motion actually said. Well, the motion covered a number of areas, but the area that opposed the decriminalisation of sex work reads as follows. Remove offences and criminal penalties for consensual sex work. Council opposed that. Repeal the Sex Work Act and regulate the sex work industry through existing regulatory agencies. Council opposed that. Introduce supporting reforms in areas such as planning, public health and anti-discrimination. Council opposed that as well. What they've said subsequently is that they want to focus on the lack of consultation and the amenity impacts. But the clear, the clear wording of the motion speak for itself and they did take a position on the state government's proposal to decriminalise sex work, and their position is in opposition to sex workers' rights. So what did you say at the council meeting last night? Well, I made a couple of points, and one of, my, one of the main points is that council, there are already existing laws in Victoria to address any of the concerns that council have about amenity impacts both criminal laws and local planning laws. And I also said that council needs to focus on real impacts of sex work rather than imagined ones. Yes, it sounds like council's really reacting to imaginary issues. So uh, what were the numbers in terms of the council vote on the 6th of September? Yeah, quite sadly, there it was a vote 10 to 1, where 10 voted in support of the anti-sex work motion and there was one dissenting vote. And so who was the dissenting vote? Independent Victor Franco. So he clearly stands out, and I, it, it seems that he um, stands out in the council on a range of issues, not just sex work. So what are the political numbers like on council? Like, were they mainly Liberal Party or Independent? Like, what were their political uh, affiliations? Yes, it's a great question. So ha- we've got around half being Liberal Party, around half Independent, and one Greens. Okay, and so the Greens councillor actually voted against uh, all of these progressive sex work motions as well. That's right, and that is rather unfortunate given his party's position supporting sex workers' rights. Yes, indeed. So it sounds like it was quite a weird alliance between the Liberals and the Greens on Burundara Council taking an anti-sex work position. Well, James, I... I just think we need to be careful about about what we say about these councillors' vote. I suspect that, like a lot of people in society, that some of the councillors might not have been properly briefed or might not have fully understood the legislation and indeed the wording of their own motion. There seems to be a little bit of confusion subsequent to that vote about what it was actually saying. So I would welcome the council to table a um, clarifying motion if indeed this is not their position, they should publicly clarify that in a, in a corrective motion. So you were one of 17 speakers last night. Uh, tell us a bit about what the other speakers said and who were they? So the, the, the only two speakers in support of sex workers' rights were myself and 
long-term sex worker rights advocate Cheryl Overs. The other speakers were all um, opposing sex work in Borondara and they were broken down into sort of three categories, Christian church groups, concerned residents, schools and radical feminists. Okay, and uh, to what extent uh, is 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 the position that they took indicative of, of the state Liberal Party's policy? Are you concerned that, you know, uh, this being the Liberal Party heartland, taking in suburbs like Camberwell, that we're going to see the state opposition running on a similar anti-sex worker policy? Well, I have no idea what the, um, the Liberal Party will be doing in relation to sex work. What I do know is that their current position is they don't have a position on sex work decriminalisation. They've said that they will wait and see, wait for the details of the bill to be revealed. So we just don't know yet how the Liberal Party will go on this topic. So, Matthew, at the meeting last night, you spoke about your own personal experiences as a sex worker in Burundara. What did you say and how did uh, people react? Well, First of all, James, I just want to say that I think it's so important that sex workers have a voice in these kind of forums at both local, state and federal government levels. We really need sex workers to have a voice, have a say and be at the table to tell their stories and um, give their opinions. I spoke about my experience sort of, I guess, five years, spending five years doing out-call bookings in the Borondara area, seeing my clients and I spoke about the fact that when I was doing sex work in Borondara, there was no impact on the residents or the community and no one even really noticed that I was there. So that really highlights the issue that council's reacting to imaginary issues. How did people respond when you said that? Well, interestingly, there, there were no questions uh, to what I had to say, so there wasn't really any response, positive or negative. The other speakers had a lot of questions directed at them, but um, there weren't any questions in relation to my particular speech. So what does the law currently say in relation to sex work? Like I understand that, you know, it's legal for people to do outbound services, but it's not possible for people to do sex work from home. Is that one of the concerns that these uh, anti-sex work counsellors were taking, that they're concerned about people doing sex work from home if sex work's decriminalised in Victoria? Yeah, so one of the big concerns that was raised was sex workers being allowed to work lawfully from home. Now, it's important to to recognise that sex workers around the country already like to work in a range of ways, including working from home. So the concern from council was that if sex work were to occur in the suburbs, it would necessarily be impactful, visible and very public. And we just don't see evidence of that here in Victoria or elsewhere in Australia. So I think that the, the, the concerns were imaginary rather than real. Tell us about the impacts that the current licensing system has on, on sex workers. Like there must be a great fear of being prosecuted uh, if people kind of misunderstand the complexities of the licensing system and there must be huge stigma. Oh, there is huge stigma. I mean, this is one of the reasons why sex workers don't even try to speak at council meetings because when you have a council like Borondara that is so openly hostile to sex workers, you can understand why people don't want to put themselves in that position. In terms of the impacts that, that the current laws have on sex workers' inability to work from home lawfully, I can recall, James, a couple of years ago being called to a friend's house in um, Borondara to go and visit someone or to, to give them a call because they had um, been robbed. 
they had um, been doing sex work and one of the clients had robbed them and they weren't going to go to the police. They weren't going to be seeking support because they, they were too worried about getting in trouble with the law themselves. I don't want to have to be responding or getting those calls ever again. I would like the law to reflect and protect sex workers in their workplaces, wherever that might be. So it actually sounds like the law is having a detrimental impact. It's not actually helping anybody. It's having a very detrimental impact on the welfare and the health and safety of sex workers. It's um, decreasing the likelihood that sex workers will reach out for health or mental health support. It is resulting in a very low level of reporting of crimes to police and or other authorities. And any problems that are occurring are largely occurring very quietly and silently and people are suffering in silence. So where to from here for Burundara Council? They had 17 speakers last night. Uh, what's their pathway forward? Where to from here? What decisions did they make last night, if any? Well, there were, there were, sex work itself wasn't actually on the agenda last night. All that happened was there, were an, an, there was an unusually high number of deputations or short speeches from residents. The councillors themselves didn't speak or debate about sex work. What happens from here, I don't know. It's it's a rather unfortunate situation that a council like Borondara has really taken sides in this debate in the way that it has. In one sense, James, it's not particularly significant. The state government has really moved well beyond moral arguments about whether sex work should be decriminalised or not. They've made that decision. They've made that announcement The debate now from the state government's point of view is about tweaking planning laws and planning schemes. And that's what I call on all councils to do. Focus on the issue at hand, which is planning schemes. It sounds like, though, if numerous councils take an anti-sex work position, that the strategy is to put the government under under pressure to walk back its commitment for full decriminalisation. Look, I, I, I don't know what their strategy is, that so far the impression I get from council is that they're certainly not a big fan of the state government, um, the state government's intentions to decriminalise sex work. I don't know how much success councils will have in opposing these changes. The state government has made its mind up. We always expected that some councils would oppose such changes. This was known years ago. I always expected it. And when I knew that it was actually happening, that's why I stepped up to speak up and speak out at this council meeting. And it was really gutsy that you did that. How do you feel after doing it? Well, uh, that's a really good question, James. How do I feel? I'm glad that somebody spoke. Um, It certainly wasn't a pleasant experience. I I think when you've got to, I mean, I'll give you an example, just to give you a feel, James, for the... um, the makeup of the council. The deputy mayor is a member of the Fairfield Congregation of the Mormon Church. So this is a this is unquestionably a more conservative council. It it took me many years of thinking about sex work to actually decide to speak up in this way. And I think that um, this is the problem that sex workers face is that there's so much stigma and so much opposition to us having our voices that it's so rare for, for sex workers to speak up in the way that I chose to. It sounds like, you know, now that you've actually spoken up at council, but perhaps other, other, other sex workers will at other council meetings around the state if we have similar scenarios uh, around Victoria. 
That's a really good point, James. I think moving forward for in the in the coming months, we will see other councils engaging with this issue and speaking about sex work more. And so I would encourage all sex workers to really be involved in their council, pay attention to what councils are doing, apply to speak, email your councillors, let them know what your views are. This is the time for sex workers to really step up and engage more with local government because local government could be one of the biggest barriers that we face to decriminalising sex work in here in Victoria. Has the government given us any more information about its timeline for tabling a bill to decriminalise sex work in Victoria? Are they still planning on doing so before Christmas? I haven't heard any hard and fast deadlines, so I really don't know. I think they're much more focused on deadlines around the vaccines and coronavirus. So nothing has been made public about deadlines, but we certainly hope that it'll be done sooner rather than later. Matthew, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, James. I really appreciate it. 
When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter.
that was Donna Summer with her classic version of MacArthur Park. We also heard from Bachelor Girl, Come Undone. 3CR Taking his ass massive attack, safe from harm. But if you're 
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear.